Elegant from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado and Air, Scotland. For all you night owls, we're presenting Midnight on Edison Street by Wendy Nickel. It's a little story about a seedy politician who believes his life is in danger and the unusual source he consults for answers about who's behind it. When she isn't busy cooking up shadowy mysteries, Wendy enjoys a quiet life near Utah's Wasatch Mountains with her husband and sons. Look for Wendy's upcoming work in the spring edition of Ember, a journal of luminous things. And please see the interview posted with this podcast for the address of her website, Facebook page, and Twitter handle. Our thanks to Wendy for this slightly spooky story, which first appeared in the anthology, It's Come to Our Attention. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. And now, here's Midnight on Addison Street, read by Keeley Rue. Midnight on Addison Street by Wendy Nickel Someone was trying to kill Lawrence Burkles. He didn't know who. No, that would make it too easy. If that were the case, he could just drop a couple Washingtons in Cousin Zeke's Christmas card, and the problem would be solved before New Year's. Unless it was Jenny. Geez, he hoped it wasn't Jenny. He couldn't bear the thought of having to send Zeke after her. Not after they'd just celebrated their fifth anniversary. Mina, his new secretary, had ordered five dozen roses and picked out a five-carat ring for the occasion. Lawrence hated to think what it'd do to his bank account if they made it to a decade. Government work didn't pay that well. But Jenny had been acting strangely lately. She'd taken to lying around half the day, binging on Ben and Jerry's and skipping her Zumba classes. He'd asked her once what was wrong, and her only response was to glare at him and slam the bathroom door in his face, so maybe she did want to kill him. He stared out his office window, composing a list with his phone's voice-to-text app of potential suspects. There was Billy, the mobster, Cousin Zeke's biggest rival, who might still be sore about the latest crackdown. There was that idiot, Stan Farley, who'd run against him in the latest election, and was probably still upset about the information Lawrence had leaked about certain illicit activities he sometimes engaged in. Then there was... Mr. Burkles? Mina stood in the doorway, the clipboard in her hand. Your eleven o'clock appointment is here. It's the humanities professor from the state college who's heading up the protest about the budget cuts? Right. Tell them I'll be with them in five minutes, and then wait ten before showing them in. Yes, sir. Oh, and Mina? Yes, sir? I have a hypothetical question for you. Oh? If you thought someone was trying to kill you, but you didn't know who, what would you do? Mina frowned. I would go to the police. No, that's not an option. He could just imagine the media circus that would follow a threat on his life, particularly if it turned out that it was Jenny who was behind all this. No, he'd learned from early on, growing up with relatives like Uncle Mike and Cousin Zeke, that some things were best taken care of, quiet-like, especially when it came to family. Mina stared at him, and something in her expression made it clear that she was going through some sort of internal struggle. 
There is another option, she said, lowering her voice as she crossed the room. There's a place in the city here where anyone can go to find answers to just about any question they have. So if I truly thought someone was trying to kill me, and I wanted to find out who, I'd probably go there to find out. Where is this place? Have I been there? Mina snorted. Most unattractively. Doubtful. Well, tell me, where is it? Mina snatched a pen from the ceramic pencil holder on his desk and scribbled a few lines on a post-it. She held it out to him with a look on her face that dared him to take it. He took it, read it, and cursed. You've got to be kidding me. Lawrence Burkle stared up at the large brick building and swallowed hard. He hadn't been in a library since he was a kid, and he could still feel the disapproving eyes of the librarians on him as he ran his sticky five-year-old fingers down the spines of the books. He'd never had much use for reading, but his grandmother liked those paperback novels with Fabio on the cover, so while she searched for the latest in the romance section, he was left to his own devices in the brightly colored children's section. He'd usually spent the time making paper airplanes out of the bits of paper from the card catalogs. As he approached the front desk, he stared anxiously at the post-it in his hand. Mina had insisted that the information there would be of use to him. She'd claimed she'd worked in a library through college and had learned the secrets of their trade. The front desk loomed in front of him, with a petite girl of barely twenty sitting opposite, typing noisily on a computer keyboard. When he approached, she didn't turn her head from the screen, but he could tell, as sure as anything, that she knew he was there and was watching him carefully out of the corner of her eye. In fact, he got the distinct impression that there wasn't a single thing happening in the entire three-story building that she didn't know about. He cleared his throat. She typed for a few seconds more and then turned to him. How can I help you? This was precisely what Mina had said the librarian would say. I need some information, he read, word for word from the post-it. Are you familiar with how to use our electronic catalogue? He looked up, making eye contact with her over the rim of her thick-rimmed eyeglasses, the kind he'd normally associate with the hipster types who were always complaining about some environmental issue or protesting his budget cuts for the arts. She quirked an eyebrow obviously impatient for his answer. He read from the post-it. The information I need can't be found in books. The librarian's eyes narrowed, and she looked him up and down, as if considering whether she'd help him or not. Then she grabbed a small rectangle of cardstock, scribbled something down, and handed it to him. Your instructions. If you can figure them out, you get one question. She held up her index finger, as if addressing some small child who didn't yet know how to count. He nodded and, not even bothering to stop and look at the message, tucked it into his pocket and hurried out the door. They met at a street corner at midnight. Lawrence carried an umbrella, despite the clear, starry sky. Though the librarian hadn't been specific, it seemed like a clandestine meeting like this required some caution. He hadn't let anyone know where he was going, even lying to Jenny about a Skype meeting with a dignitary in Australia. Her eyes had shot daggers at him as he left, but she hadn't said a word in protest. In his shaking hands, he held the piece of cardstock that it had taken him days to decipher. He 
he'd finally had to enlist the help of Mina, who informed him that the strange code was call numbers, and that he ought to look them up at the Library of Congress. PS572.B4A33-2004 Addison Street, he'd scribbled below. PZ3.S54723, MI, 1976. Midnight. GV958.P47B57, 1991. Friday night. The woman, wearing a hooded cloak and comfortable flats, was already waiting when he arrived. As soon as he was within earshot, she said, Hercule Perrault is waiting for me back home, so let's make this quick. You get one question, sir. Please, he said, his voice hoarse and low. I want to know if my wife is trying to kill me. The woman harumphed, seemingly disappointed in his inquiry. Still, he simply had to know if it was true. If it was anyone but Jenny, he could handle it. Or, more accurately, Cousin Zeke could. He clutched his umbrella more tightly. Do you have her card number? For what? In his mind, he saw the stack of credit cards and exclusive club cards in her purse. Which one was this woman referring to? She sighed. Never mind. I'll look it up. The woman punched in some information and scrolled through a list on a tiny tablet she'd pulled from her overcoat. Looking through her recent activity, I'd have to say that she's definitely not plotting to kill you. Thank you. Lawrence sighed in relief. He could call on Zeke, then. Let him figure it out and take care of it in his own way. Though she is lonely and bored, the woman continued, her consumption of romance novels and romantic comedies has increased tenfold in the last six months. She's even done some research into divorce laws. Divorce? Well, I have been busier than usual. Work, you see. Yes, well, you ought to have spent more time with her, or at least gotten her a dog. She seems to like those, or at least she did when she was younger. See? Shiloh, Old Yeller, Where the Red Fern Grows. She went on quite the dog-lover's kick for someone who didn't own one herself. Oh, and she's allergic to roses, and the ring you bought her was the wrong size. You ought to know these things after five years of marriage. But, but how do you know all that? Honestly, Governor, like you even need to ask. Librarians know everything. Everything? So you know who's been following me around, making those threats? Of course. Well, who is it? What do they want? The woman peered over her eyeglasses. A hard cylinder of a pistol's silencer jutted into his side. It's obviously someone whom you've underestimated. Someone who knows everything about you who knew just how to make you paranoid, and to whom you'd go for help. His death was quick and painless, for the librarian knew exactly where to aim in order to cause the least amount of suffering. She also knew precisely where to dump the body in the river so that the strongest currents would carry it far away, reducing its likelihood of being found in the following weeks. Back at the library, she incinerated the stained gloves and coat, and relayed the message to Central Branch via a copy of The Death of Caesar placed on their interlibrary loan card. She took a final look around the library, adjusted her eyeglasses, and headed home for a cup of tea and another chapter of the Orient Express. That would teach him to cut their funding. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.